Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy Podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Arif Khan. He is a specialist in pediatric neurology and a consultant and director at Burjil Medical City in Abu Dhabi. He's also founded the first comprehensive children's neuroscience center in the UAE called Neuropedia. We speak all about what happens before, during, and after an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, as well as the rise of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, better known as ADHD, and what he sees as the number one problem for all children's brains, screen time. It seems we hear about this, these rising rates in autism spectrum disorder um, in the, across the world. Uh, and then what I always hear in the Middle East is that there's a, a sort of a dearth of information and maybe the statistics aren't as clear. Can you sort of just touch on both of those where we're at? Yeah. So, um, if you look at about 40 years ago, four decades ago, um, the prevalence of autism as a condition was about um, around one in 800, one in 1,000. Today, it's one in 58. So we're looking at close to 1.6, 1.7% of uh, our pediatric population who has a diagnosis of autism. So that's, that's a huge number, first of all. But I don't think this is an exponential increase in the number by itself, but rather better awareness or understanding of the condition. We are diagnosing more. So if you look at 70s and 80s, when autism was not known at all, these kids who had autistic features were clubbed under uh, mental retardation, as they would say. And once we understood the condition, we are now beginning to understand the genetics of the condition. Now there is very clear idea and criteria of how to diagnose it. So we have GPs, pediatricians, neurologists, psychiatrists now diagnosing it even more. And that's the reason which is contributing the most to the overall numbers in the last three decades or so. Has it increased actually in numbers? Maybe just an, a lot of contributory factors would be there. It could be our lifestyle. It could be the environment. It could be change evolution and genetics, but still we don't know exactly. But the big chunk of that increment is secondary to better awareness and better diagnosis. Okay. I mean, we just can't compare because we didn't know about it before. So you yeah. can't really say... Okay. Um, so what about here in the Middle East? Is there any um, difference between the, the global averages or is, there, is it higher? Is it lower? How does that? There haven't been any epidemiological studies carried out in any specific country in the Middle East. Um, Saudi Arabia has some figures, but it's not very uh, comparable. Uh, but what I know, because you know, I have a number of patients that I, I, I treat in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and I don't see the figure is any, you know, any different from uh, what it is in European countries or in uh, Northern America. Um, so we are still looking at about one in 60 to one in 80 kind of numbers. Um, yes, in this part of the world, because of genetics and autosomal recessive conditions, because of consanguineous marriages, the number is slightly higher, maybe, but it's just a speculation. I don't have any uh, numbers on that. 
And how do children normally, what have they been through? Is there a typical sort of uh, situation of how they end up in your office? What, what ends up, how do they end up getting there? Um, I think about 80% of them, um, eight out of 10 kids, they uh, come and see me between, or they brought to my clinic between say two and four years of age. Although the symptoms of autism kick in by 18 months or even before that sometimes. So it takes some time for parents and um, the guardians to understand that there is a problem which needs to be looked into. So they wait and wait for the speech. Mainly it's the speech that's delayed initially. The eye contact is delayed. The social interaction is delayed, but they wait on it for a while. By the time they realize oh, the child is too, not having a single word, not maintaining social communication, let's get into a doctor. That's when they come to me. And of course, you know, once we go through the assessment protocols, get a psychologist to see them, get the medical tests out of the way, when you sit down with them to disclose the diagnosis and tell them that, yes, your child has autistic spectrum disorder, of course, it comes as a shock for them um, in 80% of the time. But in 20%, parents already know. They have done their research on Google. They would have read through, you know, many wrong articles, but some right articles as well. And they would have had an inclination that, yes, my child meets those criterias. And then they just come for confirmation. But in either case, when you actually give an official diagnosis, it hits them really hard because, you know, it's like the world has changed. So the sensitivity around making that uh, diagnosis and conveying that message to parents is very important. And the problem here is uh, the demand is a lot. And people who actually make the diagnosis and have the ability or competency to deliver that diagnosis to parents is very are very few in terms of professionals. So um, until the number builds up until we have more child psychiatrists, more child neurologists uh, in the country, this is going to be the case, I guess. And what goes into the diagnosis? What all is involved on your end? Yeah, so um, there is a medical arm to the diagnosis and there is a uh, psychological or behavioral alarm. So the most important thing is uh, standardized uh, tests or psychological observational tests. And one of them that we use is ADOS, Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, ADOS. And that's the gold standard across the world. Previously, we used to use uh, CARS and there are many other assessment tools. So if we apply this, it has a scoring system. Uh, it takes about an hour, one and a half hour as and two people do it at the same time because there might be interpersonal variability. And eventually the scores are analyzed and the outcome is given to parents. The medical side of the investigation, which I'm involved with, includes things that we do to understand that there is nothing else that is contributing to the child's speech delay. So we do things like sometimes brain electrical wave studies, EEGs, checking their hearing, uh, looking at their thyroid functions, because these can contribute to speech delay as well. Because if they are picked up early, they can be treated. And what do you tell parents when you have to deliver that diagnosis? What sort of assurances do you offer them? What do you say? Yeah, so... The most important thing is parents' understanding of the condition. The moment you give them a diagnosis of autism, the first thing that comes to their mind is, is my child going to be mentally retarded and you know, won't be able to go to school completely independent, which is not true, which is not true. So the first thing I tell them is that nothing has changed. You still have your child the way he or she was before you came to me. What has changed is you have now a perspective or an, uh, an outlook, what to expect and how to support your child. The, the most important thing and the most uh, crucial thing that we need to make sure is that parents think that we need to treat or cure our child, mm. but that's not the case. You don't have to cure a child with autism or you don't have to treat a child with autism. What you need to do is you need to integrate that child in your society. So you have to 
work mainly on our society to change that rather than on the child. So yes, we start interventions like behavioral therapies and speech therapies and occupational therapies, build a good academic environment around the child, depending upon his verbal and cognitive abilities. And then you see the child improving as time goes on. Yes, a proportion of them might not be verbal. A proportion of them might have significant behavioral difficulties, but with the right help from the medical side, the behavioral side and the right therapy program, most of my children, they go to mainstream school with help and go on to become independent uh, individuals. Yes, they might still need support when they're 15, 16, but with the right balance of support, they can be independent in the future. So th the outlook is good, provided you start supporting them from the beginning. What causes, what causes, like what is specifically going on mm. in the brain? The, the very you know, honest answer is we don't know. When I say we, I'm talking about the medical fraternity around the world. We don't know. But what we know is that 80% of the reason why anybody has autism is genetically determined. And it's not inherited. So it's not like you got it from your father or mother or grandparents. It's basically you have certain mutations or errors in your own genes that is making you more prone to have autism as you grow up. So uh, you're already programmed in that. 20% is environment. So when I say environment, it's um, in utero when the child is inside the womb and as well as ex utero when the child is born in the first year of life. So those environmental changes also can contribute. But why is it exactly caused? We don't know. There are about 100 genes or a little bit yeah, more than 100 actually just uh, found now, which have if, have, if they have an error within them, there is a higher chance of the child having autism. That's all we know about it. But there is no specific reason why a child should have autism. And what, I mean, this has got the autism spectrum disorder. What range do we see on that spectrum? Yeah. So previously, I mean, I think this changed about seven or eight years ago. Previously, there were many different components to it. So there was this autism, there was disintegrative disorder, there was Asperger's. I'm sure you would have heard of Asperger's syndrome. Then there was, uh, and a few other pervasive it's called PDD-NOS, Pervasive Developmental Disorder. But these have all been merged into a single spectrum now called Autistic Spectrum Disorder, simply to reduce the confusion and to make uh, a single diagnostic pathway uh, for this condition. It's called a spectrum because you have on one side a child who's completely verbal, probably genius in few areas like mathematics or uh, patterns and maps. But on the other hand, he might or she might not be uh, able to maintain eye contact with the person while talking. So they have a very mild form of autistic features, but they're very cognitively very good and verbal. On the other hand, on the other spectrum, uh, end of the spectrum, you have a child who's completely nonverbal, who has no social interaction, cannot be independent, no matter how, what, what his age is. So they need support 24 seven throughout. So you have this spectrum where, and there are kids lying in between the spectrum, but it's not about, Diagnosing where they are, it's about understanding what their needs are and where they need support from when they're three, four, five years of age, so that you can get them into the, the positive end of the spectrum as much as possible. And the 20% that's environment, I mean, we, we know that there are a lot of toxins in our environment. Kids are exposed, exposed to a large toxic load. Um, what, wh how much of that is contributing to, you know, we hear everything from antibiotics to the diet of the mother, to whether kids were born by a cesarean section to um, what, what 
vitamins and minerals they may be deficient in? What, how does that fit into? So we call this as uh, contributory factors or predisposing factors. I think some of them are like increased maternal or paternal age. If the father's age is high, there's a higher likelihood of the child having autism, but also increased maternal age. Then there is uh, children who have who are born by IVF, they have a higher likelihood. If there are children with IVF with twins, the likelihood goes up even further. Um, and of course, maternal, uh, you know, some you know, if mothers take illicit drugs and all that, the 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 uh, chance of having autistic spectrum disorder in your child is much higher. So we just know that there is a connection, but we still don't know to what extent each of these contribute towards that uh, risk. And do you think there are any foods or lifestyle interventions that can help children to um, sort of improve some of their performance? Screens. Uh, the one thing I tell parents is screens, yes. And I have written a few articles on this about uh, what, what I call it as a, a screen pandemic. Um, you know, if you, in, from 2008, since we had the smartphone or the iPhone in our hand, our world has changed. And, um, and this is something I try and push parents to say, go back to your roots where, where you were, say 13, 14 years ago, where you lived a life away from your digital world. And now it's just not you, your entire family is living in a virtual world. And I'm sure you would have heard of metaverse and all that coming in now. Uh, life is going better. to change, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's very scary, in fact. So uh, screens prevent children from attempting to learn and socialize. So we, screens don't cause autism, definitely not, but they can contribute towards slowing down your ability to socially interact and uh, improve your language skills. And especially children who are 18 months and above. I see 18 months old with their own iPad coming to my classroom and sitting. And that is, and I, that's the first thing I tell parents, pull that out. A child doesn't need to have any screen time before two years of age, zero. And even if you show them some screen, you know, getting a chat with their grandparents or something, you need to supervise that. Between two and five, your screen time should be less than two hours in a day. And even if that has to be very well curated and you, you should know what the child is looking at. After five, of course, they will be on the screen, but again, there have to be limits put in. In terms, of, I call them geographical restrictions. Uh, your, your dining room shouldn't have a screen in it, and it shouldn't be allowed inside. Your, your bedroom on your bed, you shouldn't have a screen. So there has to be something, some kind of boundaries put in. We, we take it for granted. It, we, it's like a hand. We use a mobile like it's a part of our body. Uh, my friends have told me now mobile is even more important than your wallet. I, don't, I disagree. It's, I mean, wallet, you can keep it and forget it and still be away for 24 hours a mobile phone is away from you for a few minutes you start panicking so it's become like you're part of your body and that we need to disconnect from that we're getting too digital yes so yeah yeah so screen do not they don't cause autism but they contribute towards the slowness of uh, social uh, skills okay have you seen in recent years like it just seems that with the acceptance and i don't know if that's like that here in the middle east but the acceptance of autism the increasing awareness that there's almost like what benefits that can come from having an autism diet. There's the, the people who have autism spectrum disorder, various parts of it can offer things to society that people who don't have it. Do you know what I'm, I'm talking about? Have you seen that? Yeah. yeah. So the reason for the diagnosis is early intervention because between two years and four years is when your brain learns at its best. And new connections are made, the old connections are pruned, and your brain develops very quickly. And if you catch a child between two and four and give them the best possible intervention, 
they are likely to achieve their best possible potential. So I, te I tell parents, if you suspect a child has speech delay and some autistic features, get, the get them diagnosed and then start therapy immediately. And how, you know, many children with autism have skills that are different from what you and I have, for example. So I, I know children, and that sometimes they are to such an extent that they are called savant skills. Uh, savant skills in many kids, or they're called geniuses. I don't use that word, but they have the savant skills. So I know kids who can, you know, remember the entire tube map of London uh, in their head. And they will tell you which station comes after which one, where you have to take a left turn and everything. There are kids who can see something because their visual understanding is and visual processing is so strong that they see a map for about five minutes and they can replicate that on a separate paper in the next an hour, in a, an hour or so. So that imagery and how they grasp onto it is very quick. So they have those skills, but the problem is our society doesn't require those skills on a day-to-day -day basis. What our society requires is for us to talk well, to have an eye contact, and for us to cook. And you know, this is what our requirements are. The child might have a complete set of different skills, which not be required by society. So if you pick that up and if you enhance that, you can utilize those towards you know, their employment, their self-dependence and, and, and those kind of things, yeah. Okay. Um, now, what about ADHD? I mean, I don't have kids myself, but it just seems like every child has ADHD. And <laughs> it really, like just from my perspective, I know that's not true, but can you just tell me what's going on with ADHD? And when did we start diagnosing that? And how, how did yeah. stats bear up? So in my social group, I have, you know, three friends who are, I mean, who are in their late 40s, but uh, they, uh, they have ADHD, they were never diagnosed, they were born in the 70s. Mm. Um, but they're successful, you know, some are entrepreneurs, some are medical doctors, but you can still see that in them. And if they were diagnosed and intervened early on, their potential and their probably achievements would be much higher than what they are now. So and the simple reason I say this is because ADHD is like your brain on Ferrari. Okay, it is always on the move. You are multitasking all the time. So if I'm focusing here and looking at you on my screen, if a bird sitting out there distracts me, or if this paper flying away distracts me, a music playing at the back distracts me, I will not be able to focus on my task and my mind will be all over the place. And if I'm tested at the end of this conversation about what discussion we had, I, I will not perform well. So clearly, and, and multitasking is difficult and women do it much better than men, <laughs> no. But that's not what is required of that child. What is required by the society and the academic institutions is that the child finishes the task which is given to him or her properly. So they, they perform poorly, they, then it translates into poor friendship circle. They are told off, then school then sets in a, a different curriculum for them and parents are brought into the school and it becomes a vicious cycle. And parents start, you know, kind of uh, blaming everything on the child that you don't focus, you don't learn, you're not spending any time on the. But I have seen once you diagnose these children with ADHD, with the proper criteria and the assessment, and you intervene, either you intervene as cognitive behavioral therapy or form of uh, programs like something called as brain RX or pharmacological treatment, which I get involved with, you see a dramatic improvement. It's almost like the attention comes together and suddenly their performance improves. Right. So it's almost like and, you're teaching them how to deal with their brain, like how to correct. corral it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're, you're teaching them how to negate or kind of exclude everything that is around you, but focus on what is in front of you. 
And cognitively, they are more, probably above average than most kids. It is just that that cognition has to be brought in to be focused in one particular area. And that's what the behavioral therapies do. Um, probably I've got more than 300 kids that uh, have ADHD. Some of them are on medication. Some are being followed up by a psychologist for behavioral therapy. And they're all showing improvement. There is no doubt about it. And this is not, even if you start medication, these are not lifetime medications. These are medications so that their brain learns how to focus. And a few years down the line, when the brain has learned how to focus, you can take the medications off. Okay. Okay. What medications yeah. are those? Uh, they come as stimulants or non-stimulants. Stimulants like uh, mifalfenidate. Uh, I mean, there are brand names like Ritalin and Concerta. These are used. And sometimes atomoxetine or Stratera. So there are medications which are used. Uh, they have to be supervised by neurologist or psychiatrist and monitored on a regular basis. But, you know, used properly in the right hands, they, they do wonders for a child's self-confidence. It's funny that you mentioned the people you know in their late 40s, because that's another thing that I have noticed is everyone in my, I mean, so many people, I, I think there's five or six that are, that say I have ADHD. And one girl I know was diagnosed when her daughter was diagnosed. Is that happening? Is our parents saying? Wait. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, if they want to. So if parents think like, look, I can't focus. I just can't. Um, <clears throat> I can't fixate on something. I can't sit down and do a particular task. And I've always had this problem. Just get yourself checked by a, you know, a psychiatrist. And if they do have ADHD in their 30s or 40s, you can still do something about it to improve your productivity and improve your efficiency. Okay. How much yeah. of our diet, which admittedly, you know, in the whole, in the, UA, in the Middle East is not great, right? We know the obesity and diabetes and diabetes yeah. rates are high. Uh, dementia as well. Um, what about the diet and some of the conditions that you deal with, with children? And what do you see in diet and how does that play out? Um, it's mainly uh, sugar related. So your ADHD symptoms can get exaggerated if you're high on sugar. So, and of course, there are many opportunities for children here in Dubai to go and just you know, pick up a, a candy or, a, you know, a block of ice cream or something like that. And if you keep them sugar high throughout the day, that hyperactivity that they have will be exaggerated. See, there are some kids who have just attention deficit disorder or ADD, not necessarily hyperactivity. But the kids who have ADHD, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, giving them high sugar will increase their uh, hyperactivity. So try to maintain your sugar levels, especially at night. So after your four, five in the evening, try to reduce your sugar intake simply because that will help improve the sleep pattern. It will help the child wind down before sleep. And those behavioral outbursts that happen just before sleep will be kind of uh, uh, controlled. Okay. And what kind of, I mean, you work on a whole bunch of, a whole range of issues, epilepsy and all sorts of other, um, what are, is there anything you're seeing rising? Is there anything you're seeing more of? Is there anything parents need to watch out for? Screens. If one message I want to pass through this and to schools, especially, I keep pushing this in, you know, all my webinars or um, my interviews that I have is even schools are encouraging digital transformation. I don't know why we're doing that and why, for example, my kids, um, I, I don't remember the last time they read a book. I mean, they read a book through a screen, but an actual textured book. And I keep taking a book out to them and showing them like, this is what it feels to, you know, turn a page on a book. 
and the smell that you get out of a book that was yours for the last few years. And if we keep them away from this for longer, it'll just be extinct. Books won't exist anymore. And I think in the next 10 years, that's what's going to happen. And that's, that's not good. And I, I, as much as I can, I push schools to say, look, you need to get digital, of course, but draw a line somewhere where it shouldn't go beyond this. Um, even regular daily teaching in schools on screens with, uh, you know, which increases their screen time, try to see if there's an alternative to do this. Go back to what you were doing, um, you know, 15 years ago. So, yeah. What is it specifically about screens from your perspective? I mean, we know about social media and j- jumping around between things and doing little bits here and there and how that can harm your brain's ability to focus. But what specifically about reading a book or l- looking at a show? Like, what is that? What is causing the problem? Um, so the blue light. So screens, no matter what screen it is, whether it's television, your iPads, uh, mobile phones, gaming devices, they emit blue light. And the blue light suppresses uh, melatonin in your brain. Melatonin is a hormone that makes you sleep at night. And if you don't have melatonin in your brain, especially when you look at screens in the evening, you will not fall asleep. And then because you're not able to fall asleep, to spend time, you will open your gadget again and you will keep looking at it. So you get into the cycle and you then have children coming and saying, my child doesn't sleep until 12 midnight. He's on the bed or she's on the bed, but still not falling asleep. And that's because... You're trying to get him onto the screen or he's trying to get onto the screen and that's keeping his melatonin down. So I always advise parents to take any gadget off from their child two hours before bedtime and that itself will improve your child's sleep. That's that's the most important thing. The other is screens have a direct effect on your retina. Now we're getting a lot of information from ophthalmologists and the scientists who work on it that it is possible that in the long run, we don't know because the screen pandemic has hit us only 12 years ago. But what is the chronic implication of this? We don't know. But there is a possibility that this can damage retina in the long run. It can change your eyesight. We now know that um, continuous screen uh, kind of use can change your eyesight. And uh, many other features, like it makes you, you know, uh, you're so addicted to it at times, you just, you become, you just sit and look at it throughout because there is no end to it. A Facebook page, you can just scroll all your life without having an end. And this is so addictive that children just sit you know, on a couch for three hours at a stretch while you know, that time could have been used to get out there and physically do something. So obesity, diabetes is an indirect effect of screens. So it's a silent killer. That's what I would say. We have to think about how we minimize the use of this, uh, the new, uh, I call it, um, there's another name I gave it to young kids who use screens. I call it electronic nannies. Uh, so I tell parents, you know, you're using your screen as electronic nanny sometimes to get some time off your child. You're handing over a screen to your child. Yeah. Uh, and this, this is not for your child. This is for you. So <laughs> you're doing the easiest thing, but it's turning out it's to easy. be the most difficult thing. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. My brother is a teacher, but he uh, so he talks about this a lot. But when my nephew was very young, like three, four Saturday night, they would have their their iPad time, they were allowed to have, and I, you know, my brother would have his time to relax and whatever, but he said his nep- the my nephew was always mood. It really impacted his mood. He said he could notice a difference in his mood the next morning. He would use a swear word to describe it, but he said, he's just yeah. not right. He's, he's crappy. He's just, and so how is it impacting mood? All of the things you talked about? 
Yeah, so I can give an example of, say, an 18-month-old infant. So if you show them a screen, even the, um, the cartoons that you have, there is so much of movement that is happening and colors moving, and that keeps them engaged. Although they don't understand the, uh, the meaning or the logic behind what's going on, the, the colors and the movements keep them engaged. And when you switch that screen off, these kids or infants, they expect the same thing out there in the world. So when they go out and sit down and listen to a story that their parents are telling them, that's not fun anymore because they're expecting those colors to flash in front of them. But that's your life. That's true life. And when you put them back on the screen and show them those colors again, they can focus better again. So it changes the overall concept of what actually the world is like for these kids who haven't, uh, who are not mature enough to understand that this is virtual or digital. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I know we sound like old fogies, but it, it, <laughs> you, you spent a lot of time. You've written like what more than 40 peer reviewed studies. You know what yeah. you're talking about. Okay. Wise words. Thank you, Dr. Arif Khan. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about all this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, for the opportunity. And I hope uh, you know, some of this information would help some parents out there. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.